0: Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to the Rundown wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Today, we're talking Illinois state finances and politics. Coming up in the second half of this podcast, we'll find out what options the governor and other lawmakers have to bring in revenue now that the graduated income tax amendment did not pass.
2: Get rid of some of the outlier exemptions, like the exemption on uh, retirement income in Illinois. You could raise up to $2 billion. Yeah, they're not gonna would, do
1: that though.
2: <laughs> well, that's what politically they say. Know, we can't right. do that because right. that's not politically popular.
1: But first, the Illinois House and Senate will not meet next week. They've decided to put off the veto session because of COVID-19, as positivity rates continue to soar throughout the state. But lawmakers were supposed to take up important topics like criminal justice reform and the budget. And the last time the General Assembly gathered in person was back on May 20th. Joining us now with the latest, WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. Hey, Dave. How are you? I'm good. All right, Dave, what's going on here? I mean... These folks haven't met since May, and veto sessions, well, they're important. Yeah, I mean, veto
0: sessions are important, and I think there had been, you know, high expectations that we would see uh, criminal justice reforms enacted here and, and, and budgetary things that needed to happen. But, you know, what the problem is, when you commit to having the legislature be in session, you know, you've got 177 mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, lawmakers coming into town. You've got uh, staffs for all of those men and women. You have a whole cadre of lobbyists. I mean, you're talking about 500 to 1,000 people easily coming into town. And then nighttime, they're out you know, out and about at restaurants and what have you. And it, it just had the potential to turn into a super spreader event unto itself. And that was the bit of the problem. Uh, Springfield is seeing COVID rates skyrocket. They're actually worse off there than they are here in Chicago. So. Mm. This is the, the dynamic we have in play here. Yeah. I, mean, I think that there's a lot of worry.
1: And they don't have a uh, – I'm assuming they don't have a business Zoom account to be able to do all this on, on Zoom.
0: Well, you know, that would be really convenient, wouldn't it? I mean, but they have not written into their rules the House and Senate to conduct meetings yeah. remotely like that. That's the problem.
1: As crazy and unprecedented this year has been, the General Assembly has been pretty AWOL. It took off the time for the election, of course. The veto session they're not going to do now. Uh, They were rare. They weren't really around for the spring session. They had that big two-day stretch at that arena. But there seems to be a need for state governments to step up, and this one seems to be shrinking away.
0: What we've seen this year because of the pandemic, I mean, this has really been, you know, Governor Pritzker and the executive branch have really taken charge of, of our government here, and it's uh it's, it's out of necessity, really, because, again, you know, we, we had a, a short period of time where they came together for, a, you know, a short enough period of time where they could pass a budget. I mean, that was the bottom line thing that they needed to do. You know, even then, I mean, there were, were instances of folks getting, you know, of folks getting ill, not on a big, you know, large scale. But the way that the numbers are moving statewide, and especially in Springfield, where the mayor and some local officials, you know, sort of flouted. The governor's orders uh, to ban indoor dining. They went ahead and allowed indoor dining, I think, with a capacity of 25 percent in Springfield and only in the last day or two lifted that uh, because their hospitals were filling up.
1: What are they not getting done? I mean, obviously, with the graduated income tax is something that we want to know what's the plan now that that's not happening. But the Black Caucus there was really touting over the summer a a really comprehensive criminal justice reform package that, that was supposed to come out in the veto session. So why don't we start there? That that's not going to happen now.
0: I still think that there's commitment on the part of uh, the House, the Senate, and and the governor to move something, but it probably isn't going to happen until you know early next spring sometime. But but yeah, I mean there had been talk about eliminating cash bail in Illinois, for example, and and, and others had talked about. Uh, subjecting police to licensure requirements—a whole litany of things dating back to the, the mid to early summer, where you know, hearing after hearing after hearing on these things—and it was, it, it, it was important work being done. Under the best case scenario, they could come back in early January mm-hmm. and do some of this stuff, but but more than likely, it could go longer than that.
1: Yeah, Dave, let's get into some politics. Obviously, there's been growing pressure for the House Speaker Michael Madigan to step down from party leadership. The fact there's not going to be a veto session, does it take a little bit of pressure off in the sense that not all the lawmakers and the media are getting together down there? But what's the latest when it comes to at least the pressure uh, being applied to House Speaker Mike Madigan?
0: You could argue that having everybody kind of apart from one another it makes it a little more difficult you know, to, for, for groups to get together and to talk about things such as voting for somebody else beyond uh, Speaker Madigan. I mean, so far, we've only had one candidate emerge as a potential leader in that caucus beyond Madigan, and that's State Representative Stephanie Kifawit from out uh, in far uh, west suburban Oswego. All we have seen so far, I think, are eight existing House Democrats who have committed to not voting for Madigan for Speaker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we wouldn't have a vote on that until, uh, until the new General Assembly is seated in mid-January. But... You know, the way the math is working, the the numbers still favor Madigan because right now he's got 74 members in his caucus. He needs 60 of them to commit to voting for him. So, you know, I think when they come in, he he lost two seats in the in the uh, elections last week. So, I mean, he's working with the number 72, basically. Right. I think a lot of people sort of assume that there has to be another shoe to drop. And that would be some development out of the U.S. Attorney's Office. I mean, so far we haven't seen that. Madigan's not been charged. He's denied wrongdoing. And Of course, that all relates to the bribery scandal involving Commonwealth Edison, where the company was saying that it was uh, effectively bribing associates of Madigan's to win influence for its legislative agenda. You know, Madigan has stayed unscathed from that legally right now. So, you know, he's, he's still skating by.
1: Okay. I saw this story this morning. I immediately thought of you because of last week talking about Election Day. So if we saw that the justice, the Supreme Court Justice Thomas Gilbride, he was not retained by the voters. The opposition Republicans had really tied him to Mike Madigan and he was not retained. What did the Democrats do yesterday that has everybody a little bit rankled?
0: <laughs> there was a replacement chosen really without much notice. And it's a Democrat, a uh, Justice Robert Carter. He comes from Ottawa. You know that keeps the court a four to three Democratic majority. Now, I will say that you know when this announcement for Carter was made yesterday by the court itself, Chief Justice Ann Burke made note of the fact that this was a you know six to nothing uh, vote, and that would that would have included um, right three Republican justices voting for this. So. This now casts everything forward to 2022, and that's when Republicans are hoping that they'll be able to thread this needle into control of the court. I mean they have to have a couple of seats right. uh, go their way next time, including this one, but that's, that's the focus
1: now. Now, there was, there's, yeah. there was some pushback because Carter said it's just interim, is coming in interim until 2022. But there was some pushback because some Republican leaders are like, that, that should just be a vacant seat. It should be 3-3, you guys figure it out.
0: The problem is that this has never happened before. Um, you know, there have been 19 previous uh, retention efforts by Supreme Court justices dating back, I think, to 1970. So you're talking 50 years. And so, you know, the rules are not entirely, you know, they haven't been out there for people to experience. And and so, uh, you know, really kind of all they're operating off of is the precedent that when a justice retires early, they usually have input into who their replacement would be. And in this case, it's not entirely clear if Kilbride exerted that. We do know that Kilbride did not participate in the vote of the court on this replacement, but it certainly keeps Democrats in control of the court for at least two more years.
1: Yeah, I I can, I can understand. I mean, if, if you just had a vote to say that you're not retaining that Democrat, then the Democrat can turn around and replace himself. <laughs> That's something people are worried about. But again, as you mentioned, uh, a 6-0 vote. So Republicans on the, on the court did it as well. Before I let you go, uh, today is Veterans Day. You've got you're, you're working on a piece, but a new Illinois Veterans Home is, in Chicago is finally—and I say that I put the emphasis on finally—complete. <laughs> tell tell us about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a project. It's on, on the northwest side. We're talking about a 118 million dollar project, five story building. It can accommodate uh, 200 veterans. Basically, it's been on the drawing boards since more than a decade, and construction began on it back in 2014. But then you'll remember that the state hit the skids uh, where we didn't have a budget for a couple of years, mm-hmm. that, you know, construction began and it had to be halted. You know, they restarted it after they, they, they passed a budget. And then, and I think it was in 2017, they realized there were some serious structural flaws in what they had built already. You know, they finally now have a facility that is ready for people to begin moving into. So governor Pritzker and, and U S Senator Tammy Duckworth, former governor Pat Quinn all came together today for a ribbon cutting ceremony for, You know, a facility that's really going to be important for families of veterans in Chicago, because up until now, you know, any of these folks who had relatives in state veterans homes had to drive to like Mantino or all the way down to Quincy, and this is going to make it much more convenient for
1: them. That's in Chicago. It opened today. The ribbon cutting was today. Uh, State politics reporter Dave McKinney joining us to give us the update on Springfield. Lots to talk about, Dave. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Justin. Well, Dave was, as always, able to bring us the big picture on state politics, so let's dig a little deeper into one specific area, finances. The state's taken a huge financial hit because of COVID, and we're still pulling ourselves out of the massive pension crisis, and voters shot down Governor Pritzker's graduated income tax proposal. So where will the money come from? Lawrence Massal is the president of the Civic Federation, a nonpartisan government research firm that keeps a close eye on city and state finances. Lawrence? Remind us why the Civic Federation was never a fan of the so-called fair tax.
2: In the abstract, a graduated income tax is not a bad idea. The federal government has it. Mm-hmm. But what Illinois was attempting to do was to address a revenue problem without linking it to the structural problems that the state of Illinois has. And the fact that 16 months ago, the General Assembly approved the graduated income tax to be on the ballot, but then did not address property tax relief, pension consolidation, pension reform, the need for um, cutting Illinois spending so that it could actually balance, and the assistance that was not provided under the proposal for the City of Chicago and other local governments. The original plan that the governor announced was going to provide $237 million. To local governments, mm-hmm. but that was then whittled down to $100 million. It was supposed to provide more money for pensions, but that actually got taken out of the General Assembly approved budget that the governor signed back in May of 2020, so that there was really no guarantee that the money was going to go right. to the pensions or to local governments. It was going to really just continue the bad fiscal practices the state had.
1: There's so much made, Lawrence, just about, you know, the advertising around it and, and this that, and the other. But, but I think a lot of Illinois residents see it the same way you do, that you said this was for something. Now it's not for something, the same thing you said it was for, and you're not cutting, uh, you know, the, the spending side. So why would we give you more money when, when we've asked you to do certain things over the last couple of years you haven't done it?
2: Right. The state of Illinois does have a very severe credibility problem. Probably nothing is more frustrating than the reality that Illinois remains an outlier, not only in its financial condition, but its failure to have the General Assembly operating remotely or virtually during the pandemic. You know, back in um, May, when the General Assembly convened, they didn't authorize themselves to meet on Zoom. Like 22 other states operate virtually their legislature. The city of Chicago and the county of Cook... That does two things. Yes, it allows the state to have a balanced and transparent approach to public policy, but it also ensures that the public has a place to go seeking redress from their government, whether it's police reform, pension consolidation, pension reform, how we're going to pay back $5 billion that's proposed from the federal government. All those things should be debated transparently virtually during this pandemic and we have missed that chance every yeah. time Illinois had.
1: The governor wanted uh wanted the revenue, right? There's no said the state needs it and pointed to to the, a new revenue stream. At some point I mean at this point, what are some of the options that Governor Pritzker has? to yeah, make up for the The graduating.
0: options
2: remain the same and the problems remain the same. If you believed that the graduated income tax proposal was going to lead the General Assembly to take further action, you would have to identify what those other actions were. Were we going to consolidate pensions? Were we going to address the unfunded liability? So now that the graduated income tax proposal did not pass, you still are left with the same problems. You have so much of your budget going into pension and pension obligations. You're a highly leveraged, poorly rated state. You have a about $9 billion in unpaid bills right now. So where could the state go for revenue? It's a place it could have gone before. If it seeks in a balanced approach to get rid of some of the outlier exemptions, like the exemption on uh, retirement and, and, and income in Illinois, it could raise up to $2 billion. Yeah,
1: they're not would... do that,
2: though. <laughs> well, that's what politically they say. Know, we can't right? do that because right. that's not politically popular. Well, you know like what? That. It's time for Illinois to start looking at what's different about our state Uh and not thinking that we're uniquely different. So the federal government taxes everyone in Illinois' retirement income. The state of Illinois just exempts it from the state income tax. You don't have to tax all the retirement income. You could follow the federal government and exempt all Social Security, all retirement under $50,000 but you would be sharing the burden of the tax on that. You could expand the sales tax base if you wanted to include services, something the Civic Federation has supported. We don't support tax increases in the abstract, and it turns out probably most Illinois voters don't support tax increases in the abstract. They want to see that it's going to be used in a way that moves our state forward, and we miss that chance. That chance continues, but unfortunately, because the General Assembly has chosen not to reconvene and address these issues, we wait now for maybe January when the General Assembly will reconvene.
1: Well, the governor says, you know, we could see an across-the-board income tax hike. How likely is that, that we see that rate, that, uh, rate that we have right now, that flat tax, moving up?
2: If it's tied to some reasonable actions that actually improve the state, then I think it's a possibility. The idea that you can you can only do one thing, that you can only raise taxes, you can't cut expenses, you can't consolidate Illinois' 6,978 property tax levying governments, which is more than twice any other state, I think that's a false uh, analysis. You're going to have to do a lot of things. You're going to have to reduce spending. You're going to have to modernize and consolidate your units of government. You're going to have to address the pension liability issue. You should basically be moving forward with reform to change the 3% automatic increase that's compounded for retirees. It's just not affordable. And then, yes, if you'd moved in any meaningful way on any of those other areas, the citizens of Illinois would support additional revenue, or there would be a reasonable expectation that from people like the the Civic Federation and others, that we could support it. But if we don't do anything, if we continue to not even have our General Assembly meet, we continue to wait for the federal government to provide revenue support, which the Civic Federation strongly supports and has lobbied our Congress and right. our delegation. that says out, right. We need revenue support. It's That's not going to get us past where we were last March with the worst rated credit in the United States.
1: Lawrence, I, what, what kills me here is that we've seen with this pandemic, I mean, 2020 should be, uh, should be, put on the wall in the budget offices of, of you can project and project and project revenue streams all you want, but, but something like a pandemic comes along and everybody's revenue stream is wrecked. So does that change the way that we budget moving forward now? I mean, because we had this moment in 2020, which probably most likely will be 2021 and, and perhaps 2022, is it going to have to be a whole new look at the way that states and municipalities do budgeting in the future?
2: I think so. Really forward thinking states and gov- local governments are preparing rainy day funds, recognizing that the present is not a guarantee for the future, recognizing that even a vaccine for this pandemic, which is many of us are hopeful that will be forthcoming, is not likely to be available to the masses and basically have safety returning to our cities and our urban centers for gathering. So, yes, you can't realistically think that McCormick Place is going to open up in the next six months or, or Navy Pier or the restaurants and hotels that have been, and we're going to bounce back in terms of those economically sensitive revenues. It's going to take some time. And most health experts would say, This will probably not be the only pandemic that the country and the world faces going forward. So, yes, we would hope that forward-thinking legislators that actually meet and talk about the budget and have a public discussion that's transparent and available would recognize that they need to have reserves, rainy day funds, and not overestimate the revenue projections.
1: Lawrence Basall, public finance expert and president of the Civic Federation. Always a pleasure when you join us, Lawrence. Thanks for the conversation.
2: Thank you. Great to be with you. Bye-bye.
1: And that is today's Reset. For the latest and most accurate information on the growing COVID-19 crisis in Illinois, tune to 91.5 FM or stream us here at WBEZ.org. And do us a quick favor. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It only takes a minute, and it really helps people find us. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you right back here tomorrow.